0: Hello, this is Anthony Day. Recently I spoke to AMPS, the Association of the Manufacturers of Power Generation Systems, at their annual conference at the Institute of Civil Engineers in London. The members of this organisation produce backup generators and a lot of associated equipment. The association also represents component manufacturers who produce engines, alternators and power control systems. My theme was energy security, the other side of the climate change debate. This is what I told them. Climate change, aren't you sick of it? It's on the television, it's on the press, it's in the papers, people are talking about it. I think that energy security is a far more important issue. And I'll talk about that in a moment. But I want to talk about climate change and I want to talk about the impact of climate change on business. But the press seem to have got it, well, there seems to be a lot of myth, misinformation and misunderstanding. Although the scientific consensus, well over 90% of the scientific community say that yes, there is a problem with climate change and yes, it's our fault because we, as an industrial society, are producing excessive greenhouse gases, but principally CO2, so it's our fault. And we're all made to feel guilty, aren't we? We're all made aware that we have a carbon footprint, and we've got to think hard about the cars we drive, we have to think hard about the holidays we take, we have to think hard about how warm we keep our house. And this leads to a range of reactions. We have the people in total denial who say if it's happening, and I say if it's happening, it's not our fault. It's because of sunspots or it's because of natural cycles because the earth has changed, the climate has changed over history. And if it's our fault, there's nothing I can do about it. The Chinese are opening coal-fired power stations two a week or something. What can I do against that? So, they say, if we've got global warming, let us benefit from it. Let us look forward to the fact that if the sea levels rise, it won't be so far to the seaside. <laughs> if the summers get warmer, we can, we, we can uh, um, produce wine in Wolverhampton. We can grow olives in Oldham. We can get a Mediterranean tan in Morecambe. And then there are the other people who look at it completely differently and say, we are in a crisis situation, this is a disaster, we are facing the end of the world. I came across some poor individual who found out that CO2 is not only produced by transport and aviation and industry and so on, but also by plants and animals, and we produce carbon dioxide when we breathe out. So he made a New Year's resolution only to breathe in. Well, you can't keep resolutions, can you? So, as the introduction made clear, I'm an accountant. I must apologise for not being an engineer. But as an accountant, I too can take a pragmatic view of the issues relating to climate change and to energy. In business, we all have a bottom line to take care of. In business, we have customers to serve. In business, we have stakeholders whose interests we must respect. Shareholders, investors. So we all want to be environmentally responsible but we will do those things which we can do at the same time as we fulfil our commercial necessities. Things which may be perceived as luxuries are things which we have to take a view on. So just to make it clear, um, I'm not here to tell you that we must all become vegetarian. I'm not here to tell you that we should all join pressure groups. I'm not going to suggest that we should uh, get closer to nature by dancing naked in the moonlight or anything like that. Though what you do in your private life is completely up to you, as I told the constable. The basic issues of climate change are flood, fire and famine, and they lead to all sorts of consequences. For business, we can categorize them into four groups. There are the physical consequences, there are the competitive consequences, there are the reputational consequences, and there's the whole area of regulation. Now, Angela's made it quite clear that the floods last year were an indication of the sort of things that can happen to us. The floods last year I heard a report before Easter which said they had nothing to do with climate change. But nonetheless, the incidence of storms in this country is rising. So, climate change or not, we can expect more disasters, more dislocation of the type that we saw last summer. Summer, I use the word loosely. But the point is that those floods made us realise that getting flooded doesn't just mean you get your feet wet. It does threaten your water supplies, it does threaten your power supplies. And I think there are a lot of people who are suddenly realising that there are a wider range of risks which they have got to protect themselves against in the area of of climate change. But the important thing of course for us all to remember is in these days of globalisation our supply chains are international. So we may be sitting high and dry and be perfectly secure because the UK is unlikely to suffer to a great extent, at least initially, from the effects of climate change. These effects are going to be much more felt uh, in other countries, developing countries, third world countries. If we have got an international supply chain, we have got to recognise that if our suppliers can't supply, if our customers cannot buy, our business is impacted. We need to be prepared. We need to analyse both ends of our supply chain And make quite sure that while we may domestically be secure, our supply chain may not. And then there are the competitive aspects. The consumer, of course, believes we should go green and companies should be green. Of course, you don't deal with a retail consumer. That's not your market. But those organizations which do the supermarkets, the banks to some extent, you can now get a green bank account. The insurance companies, who will give you green car insurance. The car manufacturers and the oil companies claim to be green as well. All of those are driven by the retail consumer. But the supermarkets in particular are pushing that responsibility back down the line because the supermarkets are scared stiff of bad PR. And while they claim to be green, they don't want anybody finding that some of their suppliers are not. So we're all, regardless of the sector that we're serving, we're all going to see pressure to be green, to be seen to be green. And indeed, I'm sure many of you go for uh, public tenders, and if you're responding to the NHS and other public bodies, you will already have documents or parts of a tender document where you have to say whether you've got an environmental policy, how green your organisation is. and. If you've got ISO 14001 or any of the other standards relating to environmental best practice. There is an initiative called the Carbon Disclosure Project. And that was set up seven years ago by about 380 financial institutions. Major investors with trillions of dollars or pounds in investment. And they sent a questionnaire... This last year, they sent a questionnaire to just under 3,000 major organizations, and they said, We would like you to explain to us what your company is doing as far as climate change and sustainability are concerned. We would like, we as investors or potential investors in your companies need to know what you are doing in the face of climate change. So, pressures are coming from another quarter. The investors are putting pressure on organizations. And then there is the the reputation issue. To some extent it has been said that uh, people are now deciding whether they will be employed by a particular company, uh, depending on whether they see that company as being green, being environmentally responsible. So maybe if that becomes a trend, you may have difficulty in retaining people, you may have difficulty in attracting people. And then, of course, there's the whole field of regulation and the whole field of the government's attitude to carbon dioxide, greenhouse gases and emissions. They pay a lot of lip service to it. We have a climate change bill which is going through its process at the moment. We have a climate change committee which apparently will coordinate all the regulations under that. The Carbon Trust is in control of this country's carbon emissions. The Carbon Trust as well as the Energy Saving Trust and DEFRA and Action on CO2 and the Department for Transport and DEBUR or whatever the Department of Trade is called these days and the Regional uh, regional Development Agencies and the uh, Environment Agency and EnviroWise. So there's an awful lot going on, but it doesn't seem to be tremendously joined up. But there are regulations coming out. I mean, you're aware, you're already experiencing the fact that emissions are controlled, which is all part of it. I'm sure you're, in, in manufacturing, you are affected by the fact that waste is particularly controlled. You know about the landfill directive and all the things that go from that. You know about the weed directive. So there are things which the government is putting in place in order to be environmental and in order to reduce emissions. But one wonders how serious they are, whereas on the one hand they've got all these agencies working hard to make us a green country. And on the other hand, they are supporting expanded airports and they are building more roads and they're closing the post offices, which means people have to travel further and increase their carbon footprint. One wonders whether they're actually particularly concerned about the planet or more about the poles As far as the post offices are concerned, one can't see their logic at all. I thought that if I was going to talk to this audience, I really ought to show a picture of a generating set as I move on to talk about energy security. That's rather a different generating set from the ones that I know you supply. It's different in a number of quite important factors. First of all, it's not portable. I mean, where would you get that many wheels? That could be an embarrassment, of course, because it's built in a floodplain. You may recognize that that is Drax Power Station. That is the biggest power station in the country. It produces 7% of this country's power. It produces 4,000 megawatts. It differs, again, from your products in that it is fueled with coal, certain amount of biomass, but principally it runs on coal. Now, the other thing, the other main difference is it's got all these chimneys. Well, it's got a chimney. The rest of them, of course, are cooling towers. That doesn't stop Al Gore putting pictures of this power station in his film, An Inconvenient Truth. It doesn't stop the Independent putting pictures of this power station on the front page of their newspaper. The implication is that people take, everybody takes a step backwards and says, shock, horror, look at all that dreadful pollution going up into the sky. Well, there is dreadful pollution going up into the sky. It's going up through the chimney in the middle, but you can't see it because, of course, CO2 is invisible. There is pollution, but it's a very, very big power station. It's the second most polluting site, I believe, in the country, after Heathrow before they put in the third runway. But those cooling towers, which of course are emitting nothing other than steam, those cooling towers are extremely important in what they demonstrate for energy security, because they demonstrate the fact that this power station, unlike the systems you provide, is only about 40% efficient. So for every tonne of coal which is put into that plant, the energy which is released, or... Over half the energy which is released simply goes up into the atmosphere, is dissipated and lost. Of course, every tonne produces a certain amount of carbon dioxide. More than half of the carbon dioxide that is created has no useful product. The question then is, as far as energy security is concerned, can we really accept these levels of efficiency? Can we really accept this amount of carbon dioxide for a relatively small return in terms of energy? Remember, once the energy has come out of the power station, it then goes down the grid where even more is lost. Well, let's look at the energy situation. First of all, UK energy consumption, the total amount of energy going in to the British economy is split up in this way. We are still dependent on coal for 19% of the energy in in this country. Oil accounts for a third. Oil, of course, is mainly used for transport. And I'm talking here only about energy uses. I'm not talking about the oil or the gas or anything else which is used as the raw material for industry. This is simply the energy proportion. Interestingly, gas is now the largest proportion of our energy mix, natural gas, 39%. Used, of course, for power generation and used for home heating. Nuclear (coughs) provides us with 7%. And renewables, as Thorsten pointed out, are still only a small proportion. So those people who say that we are going to rely on renewables for the future must recognise we've got an awfully, awfully long way to go. If we do or if if indeed we can expand that proportion. Another thing that I'd like to draw your attention to is that a generation ago, we were self-sufficient in the UK in energy because we had our extensive coal fields. We had our North Sea oil. We had our North Sea gas. We had the first nuclear power program in the world. And it was all under our control. If we move on from this and we look at how our electricity is generated... UK electricity production, well, the largest proportion is still from coal. Very small bit from oil, quite a lot from gas, nuclear 20-21%, renewables and other, about 8%. Renewables and other, other will include the hydro, the landfill gas, and the renewables will be the wind, the solar, and um, anything else. The problem with our electricity production, well, if you read the report Mind the Gap, which was produced by um, Logica CMG at the end of 2006, the problem is that we have a continuing demand for electricity. We have an ageing fleet of power stations. We also seem, until very recently anyway, to have political indecision as to whether they will build more nuclear power stations, whether they will build more coal power stations, whether they will do anything about it. It is argued that the indecision has left us in a situation where there will be an energy gap, where there will be problems. Now, Angela's told us about the power cut in northwest United States and Canada. I think what happened there was that one failure led to a cascade and whole parts of the grid collapsed. If we had failures due to the fact that elderly power stations had not been retired because replacements weren't ready, maybe we could have the same sort of problem. That could be an opportunity for you. But if you read the report, Logic of CMG predict that the cost to the British economy by 2010 could be as much as £8 billion a year. By 2015 it could be nearly 100 billion pounds per year. By 2020, it could be 200 billion pounds. They are not very pessimistic about our infrastructure. Just going back to our self-sufficiency, things have changed. Things have changed dramatically. We no longer are self-sufficient in energy. Coal, well over 60% of the coal that we use is imported. It's principally imported from Russia. It also comes from South Africa and China and places all around the world. <coughs> oil is also beginning to be imported because North Sea gas and North Sea oil are declining, as we heard earlier. Gas, we currently import about 10%. But within five years, certainly within 10, 10 years, we will be importing 80% or 90%. Now, at the moment, most of that comes from Norway and from the Netherlands and from Belgium, but the major reserves of gas available to Europe are in Russia. So in the fullness of time, we will be heavily dependent on Russia for our gas. And, of course, we're at the end of a very long pipeline from Russia, so that if there are any disputes between Russia and any of its other customers along the pipeline, as there were this year and last year and the year before, If they turn off the supply to the intermediates, then we may suffer. The other major part of our gas will come from the Gulf. The point was made a lot of reserves lie in unstable, or at least politically active, places. Up to 20% of our gas will come in tankers round the Cape, 7,000 miles, to the terminal in South Wales. It's a very long supply chain. our our security certainly has changed. Now, I said earlier on that I am not an engineer. At this point, I have to say I'm not an economist either. Because Thorsten told us uh, to, to a great extent about... Oil, but he also invited us to take it with a grain of salt. I shall take the liberty of doing so. We are not running out of oil. Well, yes, we are. Oil is a finite resource. From the day we actually extracted the first barrel, it began to run out. But of course, it's not a fear of running out of oil which is the problem. We are nowhere near the last barrel on the planet. But I believe that peak oil does provoke serious challenges. Peak oil. What is peak oil? Well, since we started exploiting oil about 150 years ago, perhaps only 100 for the major exploitation, the production of oil has gradually increased and the demand has tracked it. And the prediction is that it will reach a peak. It will reach a level at which production will plateau and then it will decline. A geologist, M. King Hubbard, stood up in the late 40s, early 50s and put forward this theory, this theory of peak oil. He said that his prediction was that in 1970 the United States, the resources of oil in the United States would reach a peak and thereafter they would decline. And he was laughed to scorn. He was criticised by the US Geological Survey and everybody said it was nonsense. And when they got to 1970, the U- US oil industry said, this year we have produced more oil than ever, ever before. But the next year they produced less. And the next year they produced less. And ever since they produced less and less. Using the same calculations... It was predicted that the North Sea, North Sea oil, would decline or would reach its peak in 1999. It reached its peak in 1999. North Sea production has declined every year since. And incidentally, if we could produce at the same rate as we do now, North Sea oil, at least in the British sector, would last 50 years, 20 years. According to the BP Statistical Review of World Energy, six years our resources are declining. Although perhaps in the short term we are seeing a recession, the long-term trend is growth. The long-term trend is an increased demand for fossil fuels. It's an increased demand from places like China, which are rapidly developing. It's an increased demand from places like India, which are also developing. If the demand continues to rise and supply cannot meet it, inevitably there'll be price rises. There may be shortages. It's not just the North Sea which is in decline. It's not just America which is in decline. All oil fields throughout the world, with the exception of the Middle East, are in decline. It's not clear whether the Middle East is in decline. That is the biggest reserve in the whole world. But the actual resources are a state secret. So it's not altogether clear whether they're in decline. But a number of people are now saying that the peak has been reached not just in the world at large, but in the world as a whole. And the Middle East is declining as well. Now, people will say, well, if the price goes up, then, well, that's no problem. As the price goes up, then it'll become economic to extract oil from more remote and more difficult places. And that is why the Russians had this um, mission to the bottom of the Arctic Sea, where they planted a flag to show that they believe that the oil below the Arctic Sea was theirs. And of course, with global warming, with the ice caps melting up at the North Pole, it's going to be much easier to get the rigs in to actually exploit it. And the Americans have been looking at the Arctic area as well. But surely the killer is that in Canada, there are tar sands. And the tar sands contain more petroleum than has ever been used in the history of the world. But the tar sands are petroleum mixed up with gravel, with sand, with clay and water. And in order to extract the petroleum, it requires a large amount of energy and a large amount of water. So much water that there is already a settling pond in Canada, which is five miles across. But I would argue that the issue is not the price of oil. The issue is the energy that is required to extract that oil. The energy return on the energy invested. When, the energy, when oil was originally discovered, it more or less flowed out of the ground. In the early days, the energy of one barrel of oil was sufficient for the production process of 400 barrels of crude. But in the century that has followed. As we are getting oil from more remote and more difficult locations, that ratio has fallen. That ratio has fallen to single figures. And when we get to the point where it costs one barrel of oil to extract one barrel of oil, it's not worth doing. That is why there are remote oil fields and there are remote gas fields and they're classified by the oil companies as stranded assets. Because the energy that it would take to get them out is more than the energy that they would recover. So I believe that we will see a problem with oil. And if we see oil continuing to rise, okay, the underlying trend may be $35 a barrel. Last week it was $112. The beginning of last year it was about 55 We must watch it. We must see how it goes. But we all know that petrol at the pump in this country has gone up by 20% in the last 12 months. Whether that's symptomatic of a realisation that we're short of oil, I doubt. Because when people realise that we're short of oil and they agree that it's true, I think the oil price will go dramatically higher. (coughs) £2 a litre by 2010. And that will make us question the whole business of transport, leisure, commuting, distribution... It will impact agriculture because oil is used not only for the farming process but also for producing fertilisers and pesticides and so on. Oil is implicated in pharmaceuticals, oil is involved in plastics, oil is the oil which lubricates the wheels of industry. Now, you might say, well, what about biofuels? Well, come back again to energy return on energy input. Biofuels don't do it. They're not nearly as effective as people expected. And in some cases, where particularly in the US, where subsidies have skewed the market, the actual energy going into the production of biofuels is less than the energy coming out. What about hydrogen? Well, hydrogen is a store of energy or a means of transmitting it. But again, you have to put far more energy in than the energy you can get out of the hydrogen that you produce. We have a problem. What about renewables? Well, in Egg, Egg Power, have we heard about Egg Power? Egg, it's an island in the Hebrides. They have got wind power, hydro, and solar, and a great big bank of batteries. And it all works very successfully. But the islanders have got far more electricity than they ever had in the past, but they haven't got um, nearly as much as we are used to. And they still have their diesel backup generators. And I think more and more we'll see that. I know that this is a fairly doomsday scenario, but I think that your industry, unlike many others, has opportunities here. Because as power from grids and so on becomes less reliable, as people start using more renewables but need a backup. As people question whether centralized generation is as efficient as we can accept, then there must be opportunities for localized distribution generation and for increasing the efficiency of how we use our energy by putting in combined heat and power systems. I think that your organizations, that your industry, has opportunities. So. My view is that the future is nearer than we think. I think the future is a lot worse than we think. I think the future is a lot better for you than it is for many people. And my message overall, my message is the old Boy Scout adage, be prepared. Be prepared because the world is changing. Well, the world's always changed but change like we've never seen. Be prepared because the world is changing for industry. Be prepared because the world is changing for humanity. Be prepared, ladies and gentlemen, because the world is changing forever. So, be prepared. This is Anthony Day. If you want to know more, please get in touch. You can email me at mail at anthony-day.com or have a look at my website, www.anthony-day.com Till next time.